favor, take out a um, sheet of paper for a minute and um, just a scratch paper or something. One of the questions I love to ask people when I interview is, where do you see yourself five years from now? Where do you see yourself five years from now? Write it down. Five years from now. <clears throat> so here's my question. Is that what God wants for your life five years from now? What does God see for you five years from now? Okay. Kind of put that question in the back of your mind. Um, Sunday morning, right before the sermon, um, we saw a video. And I kind of liked it and wanted to show it again today, and then we'll talk a little bit about it. So let's watch this. So last week as I finished the lecture, I went back to my office. I, I realized there were two things that I wanted to say. And one was a little bit of context. Um, you know, I told you, we talked about the fact that James is being written within probably about 15 years of Jesus' death and resurrection. Um, you can imagine the excitement. I mean, Jesus is alive and, you know, he's got up to heaven and he's going to come back again. The Messiah, he really is the Messiah. Everybody's kind of excited about that. This is it. Now it's going to be the time when, when God's going to put his kingdom on earth and the Romans are going to be overthrown and this is going to be really cool. And then James, the brother John, gets put to death. Peter and John get arrested, beaten up, told not to preach. Stephen gets killed. And you begin to go, what's going on? How do we live? What's happening around us? God, where are you? And James writes, these trials they're not meant to get you to question where God is. These trials, these trials are actually ways that God is working and can work in order to mature us up, in order to be the people that he wants us to be in this time for his kingdom. Because it's not about Israel becoming a nation again. It is about God blessing the nations through Israel. Pray for wisdom that you might understand how to live even when you don't understand what God is doing. The other thing that when I went back to my office I thought about that I, I, I kind of wanted to say is years ago um, when I was first starting out I remember going and watching Fulton who's associate pastor back then executive pastor um, doing a funeral because I wanted to learn how to do funerals and I remember sitting in the back of the church and watching what was taking place in front of me and I remember going God 
this is not right. I mean, all of this pain, all of this hurt. And it was one of those times when God kind of spoke and he said, it's not. It's not right. Death is never what I intended it. That death is never what I created life to have. Okay. That's why I sent Jesus. So that death doesn't have the final word, but that Jesus has the final word. Look to Jesus. Could I have that first slide, Carolyn? One of the quotes I came across in studying for today is that our lives, transformed by the gospel, learning to look at the world differently, standing firm against temptation, are just part of a larger project. Our lives are the first fruit. They're part of a larger project that God is doing to restore all of creation back to the way it was intended to be. To create, in a sense, a rebirth, not only in ourselves, but a rebirth in all of creation. And you know what? I don't, I can't speak to this, but some of you can. Birth is not without pain. Okay? Okay. This restoring that which was lost involves lots of deaths until there's final life. And some of those deaths come as we encounter various trials because in the midst of those various trials, God shows us what it is that we're really dependent upon, what we really want out of life, what our goals in life really are. And he gets us to become compassionate and more like Jesus And so James says, when all this stuff is going on and you don't get it, two things. One, consider it joy because God is working towards making you like Jesus, towards enabling you to be part of the first fruit of this recreation project that he's involved in. And pray for wisdom Wisdom so that you would know how to respond in a situation. Because the world's ways of responding and the world's value systems and what the world says is important really isn't. It's all transitory. It won't last. And so after, in a sense, kind of giving us an introduction and and talking about what it means to be, calling us not to be double-minded, he basically moves into a couple illustrations. He says in verse nine, believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position. In a sense, believers in poverty, believers who are socially despised should take pride in who they are in Jesus. 90%, 90%, somebody said, of the, of the Roman Empire wasn't living, you know, in the upper comfort level. 90% were living hand to mouth. Okay? People were slaves. 
They didn't know where their next meal was coming from often. They were a people who were under Roman authority. They had no freedom. Status was everything. And when you're a slave, you're actually owned by somebody else. You're just property. You know? And if you're not Roman, you have no rights. And James is writing and says, if that's you, don't become bitter. Don't think that life is helpless. Don't think that you're worthless. Don't think that you're just property. Remember who you are. You are a child of the Most High King, of the Creator God of the universe. You will inherit, along with Jesus, all that God has to offer. Fix your eyes on who you are. Stand up. You're a child of the King. And so don't, don't let your poverty define you. Let Jesus define you. But then he goes on. But the rich should take pride in humiliation. That's really interesting to read the commentaries on this. Because the commentaries basically want to go, they're, they're, they're divided evenly on this. Okay, half of them say that when James is talking about the rich here. He's using the same word that he's going to be using a little bit later on in James, which is going to talk about people who aren't even Christians. And so some people say these are not even Christians. And other people say, no, these are those people who are rich but are in the church. Okay. Um, I'm going to go with this side that says these are people who are rich in the church. The, the side that says that um, take pride that that these are non-Christians, they basically say these people think that they're rich now and the humiliation that we're talking about is that Jesus is gonna come back and they're gonna be judged and they'll be really humiliated, you know what I mean, because they will die, right? Um, but I, I really don't feel like that interpretation doesn't make sense to me as much as the one that says this. When you're rich, you have a tendency to take pride in what you have. Okay. In those outward signs of significance. You know, for us it's the car, it's the house, it's the clothes, it's the looks, whatever. When you're rich you take pride and you find your security in what you have. And James says, no, remember who you are. Remember that you are a sinner saved by the grace of Jesus and without Jesus you are nothing. Remember your lowly position. See? Because then what happens is rather than becoming secure in what you have, you, you see everything you have as a gift from God to be given out and shared with other people. He says, take pride in their humiliation since they'll pass away like a wildflower for the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossoms fall and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their own business.
reading James is reading New Testament wisdom literature. He keeps quoting all of these proverbs that are found in the Old Testament. You know, that is straight out of Isaiah. Okay. And it basically asks us to ask the question, what am I putting my trust in? Will it stand the heat of the sun? Will it stand at the end of the day? Um, John Ortberg um, tells a story, he actually wrote a book called this, but he tells a story about when he was growing up, his um, grandmother and him used to sit and play Monopoly all the time. And his grandmother was one of those people who, you know, felt that the best way to bring up a child is not to let them win. So she beat him all the time. Until one day, one day, he finally won. And her response to his winning, yay, finally, was to pick up the Monopoly board and throw it into the box and basically says, it all goes back in the box. And it taught him a life lesson. It all goes back in the box. What I am working for, what I am thinking will give me identity and security and significance, will it stand the test of time? Or to end up back in the box? at the end of the day. See. Um, most people see verse 12 as kind of the beginning of a new section, kind of um, 9, 10, and 11 kind of being the closed, and then 12 kind of re- brings us back around to that consider pure joy, kind of re- capitulates what he said before um, and then goes on to finish such as blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because having stood the test that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord promised for those who love him what am I going after am I going after the things of this world or am I going after the crown of life? Am I going after the love of God? See? And then he goes on to a second illustration. He says, when, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. Here's a slide with two words on it. Um, it's about the third one down, fourth one down. Yeah. Um, that word, fear, I'm on list, whatever it is. Don't ask me. Um, that's why I type it up and put it up there. That Greek word, kind of described in English, um, it's the same word for trial, test, temptation. It's all the same. Okay? So when, when, um, James says, consider it all joy. 
when you encounter various trials, he's using his word. And that's what we said, you know, some of those trials can actually be things that God allows us to go through. That God might even be disciplining us with some of those trials. And then he comes down to this one and he says, but when you go through those trials, don't say that it's God who's tempting you. Don't say it's God who's testing you. Don't say it's God who's trialing you. Wait a minute, am I contradicting myself here? Okay, same word used in two different ways. Um, one of my authors said we have some of the same thing in, in English. Um, sanction, illustration, okay. A sanction could be used to give permission to or sanction could be used to kind of not give you something. Same word used in two different ways. In a sense, the same thing is happening here in the Greek. When it's talking about something outward, it gets translated as a test. But when it's talking about something that happens inside of us, it gets translated as temptation. When tempted, no one should say God is tempting me for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. And that's that second word. Desire, lust, over desire. Then after the desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And, and then sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. If um, you were back in school and your teacher gave you an algebra test and you failed it, was it the teacher's fault? Well, maybe if she didn't teach you the algebra right, but probably not. Was it the test's fault? Not if it was testing what you'd been taught. Whose fault is it? your fault for not learning the algebra. Okay. If something is outward, it's a test. If it's how I'm responding to it, then it becomes a temptation. With every trial, there's a sense of an outward opportunity for me to grow and an inward temptation to give in. Okay. Um, in fact, actually, let me go back. I want to go back to one thing because now that I'm remembering this one for a minute. Um, let, let's talk about it. If you're poor, okay, um, that can be an outward test for you to recognize that who you are is who your identity is in Christ. Or it can be a temptation to be bitter for not having what somebody else has. Okay. See, it's how I respond to the situation, what my attitude is in looking at it. Um, there was, when he talked about rich and poor, I wanna go back to this just for a minute, because I meant to do this. Um, there can be lots of contrasts on that, that statement of, of um, in a sense, where are we finding our worth and where are we finding our identity? Um, it can be a contrast, you know, blessed are you when 
you're ill. And take pride in the fact that you're ill because then you're seeking God for healing in your life versus those who have health and think it's what God owes you. It could be, you know, take pride in being single. Versus thinking that God owes you a happy marriage. Check out First Corinthians eleven sometime. First Corinthians seven sometime. Okay. Um, blessed are those maybe who don't have children. Because God wants you to adopt tons of children versus those who have a family who have to spend all their time taking care of their family and don't have time for God. Those contrasts go back and forth to going, where do I find my security? Where do I find my identity? And then this temptation stuff just takes that one step, step further. When things start happening into my life, how am I responding to it? Tells me where I find my security, where I find my happiness, what I really love. Okay. Um, sin in the Old Testament was actually more often, it wasn't so much of an action that Israel did, it was more often defined as adultery against God. Because what it was was them going after something other than God to find them happiness. Okay. In a sense, that's what a temptation is, going after something other than God to find happiness, desiring something other than God. In fact, actually, in a sense, beginning to over-desire it such that it becomes all-important in my life. And he kind of talks how it can actually start out just kind of as kind of a neutral thing, but once it kind of gets birthed in us, it, it kind of grows until the point death takes over. It, it's what we have to have no matter what. When Jesus was in the, in the wilderness, it says that he was tempted by, by Satan, okay? Basically, he's given a test. Satan comes to him and says, you're hungry, aren't you? You know, Jesus, yeah, I haven't eaten for 40 days. He goes, well, there's some stones. You have the power, turn it to bread. Okay. The temptation is for Jesus to give into his desire to eat his way rather than waiting for God to provide. And, and, and he response to Satan was, man doesn't live by bread alone, but by the word of God. Uh, Satan goes on and takes him up to you know, a hill and says, you know, throw yourself down. Let the angels come and save you. I mean, it's scriptural. You know, do something spectacular so people follow after you. And Jesus goes, I'm not going to put God to the test. I'm going to find my security and my identity in him alone, not in what I do, but in what he gives me. A lot of times we go after something that at 
to begin with really isn't a problem. In, in fact, what might be a temptation to one person isn't a temptation to another. Work is not bad. God created us to work. But work can become a temptation whereby we seek, whereby we find our identity and our security in who we are and what we accomplish at work to such an extent that we become workaholics. It begins to control our life. The temptations here, when we read this, we think of, oh, the temptation to, you know, have sex or to do drugs. And, and that's part of it. But actually, it goes much deeper than that. It goes down to that level that says, what is controlling my life? What do I have to have at all costs? See? And, and at that point, it's my decision to go after that. I'm not forced to do it. Um, Tim Keller uses this illustration. He, he says, um, one of the temptations is say you're, you're working in a company and, and your boss wants you to lie. He goes, and so you have this temptation to lie. In one sense, it's a test. Am I gonna listen to God or am I gonna listen to my boss? And you kind of go, well, if I listen to my boss, if I don't listen to my boss, I'm going to lose my job. If I lose my job, then I'm not going to have any income and I'm not going to be able to provide for my family. And so I'm going to lie. And then the response is, well, my boss made me do it. No. You made the decision to lie and to trust in your job and your work more so and that God might provide for you if you did lose your job or what God might do in the midst of your telling the truth or standing up to your boss. The decision was all yours. And so James is saying we need to take responsibility for our lives. We need to do the hard work when we're faced with various tests and then tempted out of that to do the hard work of going, what am I trusting in? What am I wanting? And he goes on, and he says, don't be deceived, brothers and sisters, for every, not some, but absolutely every good and perfect gift is from above. Jesus says the same thing. You know, Jesus says that God pours down rain and brings sunlight at the proper time on both those who are sinners and not sinners or both the people of Israel and not the people of Israel. Every good gift, every good thing that we possess, the air to breathe, everything, isn't because we worked at it, isn't because Somebody else gave it to us. It's all finds its source from Father God. The Father of the heavens who does not change like shifting shadows. The Creator God who's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. He is the one who provides everything. 
I've had a couple times this spring to, to talk to a couple of people about jobs and getting jobs and different things like that. And you know, you go for interviews and you kind of walk out and you go, oh, I blew that one or they blew that one or something. Um, and we, we somehow think that we have to find the perfect job and we have to do all the job hunting and, and we do, we have to do all the work behind it. But when we actually get that job, that job really is a gift from God. It's not something that we've earned, see? And I need to look at everything that I have as really a gift from God and something that I need to remember to hold with open hands and be thankful for. See, we have a heavenly father who created the whole universe and he created it good and he doesn't change and he's in the process of recreating it good and he's using us in that plan and he doesn't change. You know, I have a um, garage that's full of boxes right now and I need to go through those boxes. Some of those belong to my mom. Some of them, I will admit, including this whole cabinet, belong to me. This one cabinet is filled with cassette tapes. <laughs> I can't even find a cassette player to play them. Okay? Now, have I tossed them out? No, I'm still holding on to them someplace, you know, online. Things change. We no longer have cassettes. Okay? We don't even have VCRs. Okay? Things change. But God never changes. And then James reminds us who God is. He chooses. God made a decision. It wasn't an accident. It wasn't just something he fell into. It was a deliberate decision that he made to choose us, to give us birth, to call us his children. It says he did that through the word of truth, that we might be the first fruits of all he created. The word of truth, the word logos. Remember John 1, through Jesus, that word of truth who comes to us to indwell us. God gives us birth through Christ within us, through his word within us, through his truth within us so that we no longer follow the deceptive ways of the world, but instead we follow after the truth of God. But I'm not going to discover the difference without trials. But when I'm faced with trials, I need to not give in to the desires of the world to the desires that say me first, to the desires that within me. But I need to make a decision to be obedient to the truth of God, trusting in him that he will give me all good gifts at the end of the day. Um, God is good. Only good comes from God, and all that is good comes from him. Our gift giver is the father of creation. His goodness never changes. His goodness is in accordance with an extension of the goodness that we experience in salvation. 
If God allowed Jesus to die for you, why would he not give you all things, Paul says. Galatians 2 says, um, that I have been crucified of Christ. It is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives within me. Paul in Philippians says that everything that he possessed, all the things of the world, the great education, all the great things that he had done, his standing in the tribe of Israel, everything that he was, he counted it all lost. In fact, everything he did yesterday, all lost. For the sake of knowing Jesus. And even Jesus' suffering so that he might, along with Jesus, attain to the resurrection, the eternal life, that crown of life. My question is again what I left you with. What are you living for? What are your goals? What do you hope for five years from now, 10 years from now? Are those goals, those things that you're hoping for, will they last? Will they stand the test of eternity? Will they really give you what you desire? Or are they really over-desires that will fail in the end? The only way to know is by taking it all to prayer. Seeking to be like Jesus through his spirit and his work, trusting in his will and ways even when we don't get it. Because we don't understand moment by moment what God is doing. But I can go into moment by moment saying, God, how do you want me to respond here? And I will trust that because I'm not living for the transitory things of this world. I want to live for you in every situation that you put me in. Do me a favor, take a minute and just sit with God. One of the ways to figure out what controls you is what your attitude is when you don't get what you want. Where's bitterness and anger in your life? And disappointment. And what does that tell you about what you've been lusting after? Give it to God. Ask him to give you what you want in his way. And then spend some time thanking God for what he has given you. 
and especially for who he is. Lord, this rebirth thing is not easier. And so we seek you. Thank you for the crown that you have set before us. Thank you that even now we are sitting with you. Thank you that we are your daughters. Thank you for your love. Lord, increasingly show us how to rest in you and respond out of you. Help us to practically live out what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom as we walk through this day and tomorrow and the next day until your kingdom arrives. To you be all praise and glory. In Jesus' name, amen.